Greetings and welcome to episode number 27 of the Chirping the Cats podcast. I'm your host, David Dwork, here with you once again. And we're going to jump right into this episode because joining me is a 14-year professional NHL goaltender, or NHL and AHL goaltender, current Vegas Golden Knights studio analyst, host of the Six Degrees podcast with Mike McKenna, and goalie coaching for 44 Vision Hockey, Mike McKenna. Thank you so much for joining me today, bud. You're welcome. Good job. I think you got through just about everything. Also father of two. I have two daughters, but uh-huh. uh, you, you wrapped off just about everything that's important for my professional side of things right now. Well, the fatherhood's important too. I've got, I've got a little one myself, so definitely uh, definitely important to throw that in there. So the first thing I want to ask you, as I mentioned in, in the intro, 14-year career between the AHL and the NHL, how many pro teams did you actually play for during that time? A lot. Uh, <laughs> I get asked this so often that I should have the scorecard in front of me. Uh, I believe I can tell you NHL teams off the top of my head. I know that I played for seven and I dressed regular season games for nine. And, you know, part of this being Florida Panthers podcast are related to that was one of the teams that I dressed games for, but didn't play. So, you know, it's kind of that gray area that people will go, Oh, you only played for seven. Oh, it was nine. Cause Florida was in the mix. And then uh, Vancouver as well. I dressed games for, but never got into the game itself. You still get the NHL game check though. Yeah, I got paid. Yeah. Uh, that's the, the good part of it. Um, didn't get the jersey, but got paid. And then the other aspect, uh, the NA, as far as the American League, I think oh, 14 or 15. Wow. Uh, I know I have the record in the American League, I think, for a goaltender. And in the NHL, I'm tied with Sean Burke for the record. And wow. then one ECHL team early in my career. My first two years, I played in Las Vegas in the ECHL. So it's somewhere in the mid twenties. If I actually go back and count all of the jerseys. That's, that's amazing. It's funny. Some people may look at that like in a negative light because you got to spend so much time in the AHL and so little time in the NHL. But I mean, from my perspective, I just see somebody who got to live out their dream as a professional hockey player and get to make a living doing one of the absolute best jobs there is to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, I played almost three dozen games in the NHL and, and was up for you know, almost two seasons worth of time, if you add it all together over the years. So, I mean, my career was gravy. I never expected any of this in the first place. It's just kind of kept progressing on from the time I left home for juniors at 16. It was one nice surprise after another that led to things and it just kept progressing. And, you know, I, yeah, I spent a lot of time in the American league, but absolutely. I'm proud of that. You know, it's not easy to play there. It's not easy to keep getting a job and keep being a number three. Uh, And, and it always, felt like the NHL was beckoning me. You know, I wasn't ready to give up on it because one, I was making good enough money in the American league that it made sense for me. But two, you know, every year I was getting called up and I felt like I was just, you know, that one hot streak away, right. You know, 20 or 30 games where if I was lights out, maybe I could have stuck and made a a full NHL career out of it. And, you know, as I got older, that, that glimmer of hope started to kind of fade, just knowing I wasn't a prospect anymore, but it was still there and it felt right. And, and I'm completely, proud and comfortable of my career. Yeah. I mean, so much of it also, I mean, it's like timing, right? Cause like sometimes you, you just kind of get thrown into that situation and you're like, okay, you're going to get 20 games here. Just do your thing. And guys can turn that into a career. And sometimes it doesn't fall your way and you maybe get called up for a few games here because of an injury, but you don't really get a chance to, to get your feet solid in the ground. Yeah. Well, you need to be somebody's prospect. You need some juice behind you too. Like you need a scout who's got his, his career on the line uh, going back behind you you know, pushing you along that (laughs) we need to play this guy because he's our prospect. Well, that was never me, right? I was a draft pick of the Nashville Predators. I didn't sign with them after college. So I came out in pro in 2005 on an ECHL one-way contract. 
you know? And so for me, I had to grind even to get my first NHL deal. I got it two days before I stepped on the NHL, NHL ice with the Tampa Bay lightning. I'd never been to it. I'd never done training camp, anything. So uh, for me, it was, uh, it was a grind, you know, and to even get the number of games I did meant I had to outplay the prospect that I was teamed with in every city. And in some cities I outplayed the prospect and didn't get the call up. You know, there's examples of that. You can go look at my stats. They are better than my goalie partners in a lot of places, but I didn't get the call up. And that's just the reality of hockey. You know, you, you have to look at it through the prism, through the lens that, you know, fairs, cotton candy. It's what you get at the fair. You know, you, there's not, <laughs> it's not clear cut, right? You know, if you're 32 years old and you're playing marginally better than the 24 year old who you think is going to be the franchise goalie down the road, who's going to get it. So uh, I, I was always able to look at it very realistically, but, but, but yeah, I always wanted more, you know, like I, I was just dying for that chance. And uh, you know, it, it, uh, it never really manifested itself, but you know, I got the chance to be there and play those games and you can't take that away from me. Well, this being a Panthers podcast, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about your time with the franchise, which uh, for those listening was from 2015 to 2017, split between the Portland Pirates, the Springfield Thunderbirds, and and as you mentioned, the call up to the Panthers. Does anything stand out to you during those two seasons? I know you got to play for Jordy Kinnear, who's still with the franchise now in Charlotte, but uh, anything stand out from your time here? Well, probably how truly weird it got the second season when <laughs> Tom Rowe took over everything, I guess is the, the simplest way to put this. Um, you know, the first year with uh, in Portland, it's probably the best season I ever had pro Pierre grew. And I, uh, who was a goalie coach at the time worked together. Fantastic. We had Scott Allen take over as head coach midway through the season. And Scotty Allen is as good as they come. Absolutely. Fantastic coach. You know, I'd signed a two-year deal to play either in Portland or Florida, and I would have never signed a two-year deal to, to go anywhere else. That was the plan. And the team gets sold without any of us knowing in the middle of summer. And I find out on a phone call from a reporter tells me. And so that was a big shock to the system. And then going back to Springfield, a city that I'd already played in once, um, frankly, wasn't enthused about that. Um, but you know, it, it went from the organization being really exciting, it felt like, and a lot of young players and moving in the right direction that first year to all of a sudden the summer leading into my second season, it just went off the rails. Good Branson got traded. The identity of the team went out the window with that. And it just got weird. There's no other way to say it. And uh, so that second season, yeah, I mean, it kind of started off rocky. They got Red O'Bara, you know, told me in the summer that, oh, Red O's going to back up Luongo. And then Five days later, Reiminger, it's a five-year deal. So, you know, things weren't always truthful at times, which always is frustrating as a goalie, especially when you're coming off your best season pro. Um, but yeah, still managed to get called up for a little bit with Florida that second season and was on the bench to watch Yager move into second place all time in scoring and, uh, and, play and, and, you know, play beside Roberto Luongo, back him up, which was absolutely unbelievable. Um, so yeah, it, uh, it was interesting off the ice, I guess, when it comes to that aspect, but on the ice, you know, just pretty thankful to be able to play with some of those legends of the sport. That's actually a perfect segue into the next thing I was going to talk about, which was the guys that you got to play with. But I, before I jump into that, I'll say Panthers fans listening to this are going to love hearing you talk about the weirdness of that 2016-17 year, because going off a division championship and the best season that this franchise has ever had, and this is a franchise that has not had very many good seasons at all, to go from that kind of a pinnacle to that craziness of that next year with switching GMs, switching mindsets. And you mentioned getting rid of good Branson. Putting your and, coach in a taxi. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, <laughs> you know, the, think of the messaging that sends down throughout the organization, you know, when they, when the, when the guys that are prospects see that, you know, <laughs> so, um, pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Rarely yeah. seen. Well, speaking of those goalies that you got to play with the list that I was able to come up with, uh, whether it was training camps or whatever, Sergey Bobrovsky, Luongo, Ben Bishop, Craig Anderson, one of the best guys out there, Marty Brodeur, and one of my favorite goalies of all time, who I brief interactions, but absolutely love the guy, Johan Hedberg. Nice. You're bringing up moose. <laughs> oh, I love moose. I got a great yeah. moose story. I was on the ice, uh, the ice crew for the Panthers when I was like a teenager and he was a backup for Atlanta and he'd fist bump me every time I'd come by the bench because he saw my goalie skates. Yep. Somebody from upstairs saw that call down and said, no, you can't do that anymore. He's on the other team. And he, he always gave me this look of sympathy after that because I wanted my fist bump and he knew it and I couldn't give it to him. But oh, what man. a great guy, right? That's right. You know, that's just right up his alley. He's, he was a super, super teammate, nicest guy you could ever imagine. And just a, an unbelievable rounded athlete. You know, we'd go play soccer before the game and he could, he looked like Pele out there. You know what I mean? He could kick the ball. He's flexible. He just was incredibly coordinated. You could tell he's a guy that if he picked up like a tennis racket, he'd be really good at that too. Um, he was fun to play with and play behind, you know, I mean, I, I came in relief <laughs> one game and I started one game during my time with him, but just to watch Johan, especially like his old school tendencies, you know, he was one of the last guys who would still attack people in the shootout. Like he couldn't lose a shootout and one out of three shooters, he would go full two pad stack, poke check, catch him completely off guard and he'd nail it every time. So I admired that about him, that he stuck to his guns and kept playing his way uh, and really made a great career out of it. And just getting back to some of those other veterans, I mean, does anybody stand out that maybe said something cool had a cool impact on you or you know, anything like that? Uh, as, as far as a goalie partner, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if, you know, looking back on it, anybody did a lot. I was in a lot of strange scenarios, I guess, at call-ups because there were always injuries a lot of times, right? Um, and you don't always get close with the goalie that, that's there when you're in a role like me, like you sign a contract, you show up, you're in camp. It's not like you've grown up through a system you know? So like, yeah, I can think of my time in Arizona and Mike Smith and I were friendly in Tampa. We were friendly, but I wouldn't say we were close by any stretch, you know? And right. a lot of times when I got to the NHL was later in my career where at times, even some of those guys were in some ways looking up to me that I'd been playing pro for eight or nine seasons, even though a lot of it had been in the American league. So uh, it wasn't as much of a mentorship at that point. It kind of was like a two-way street back and forth, mm -hmm. you know, where we'd rely on one another. Um, but really like, you know, the time I had with Kari Lettinen in Dallas was, was super cool. Cause we were both 2002 draft picks. We're like the same age. Um, and for him, it was probably a breath of fresh air to have somebody to come in and just hang out like that. That was <laughs> kind of in the same wheelhouse. And, and I, and I don't think I was a big threat to him either. And not that it mattered to him. Um, but it was, we really bonded, you know, same era guys. We talk about old school goalies and super, super fun goalie partner. Yeah. Goalies. I mean, like you said before, it's, it's a brotherhood. You always have fun stuff to talk about. Um, 14 year career split between three different professional leagues. You got two led two teams to a Calder cup final, which I mean, playoff runs, no matter where you do them are always fun. Um, but are there any moments from your career that kind of stand out when you think, man, that that's like my moment, or that's like, that was a fun game or. Yeah. Game seven of the Calder cup finals, 2018, we lost, um, which the irony to that is that it was still probably the pinnacle of my career, even though we lost, you know, it was game seven 
of the last game on earth for that season. I think it was June 14th. And then the previous year, game six was like June 13th. I was playing in the last games played of that calendar year. Uh, and the series against Toronto and, and that whole 2018 Calder Cup run, you know, I, I, you know when you're playing well as a goalie. And you're always trying to be as humble as you can and, and defer blame or not blame. Sorry. You try to defer credit and, and your teammates. And uh, I'll be really realistic. 2017, all the way to the finals, that team was stacked with Syracuse. And I was a part of it. <laughs> I wasn't a huge factor. I was a part of it. I just had to play well. Um, but for that team in Texas, for us to go all that way, I knew I was, I was playing out of my mind. I knew I stole two series. I stole the first series. I stole the second series. Um you know, third series against Rockford, I was okay. And then we get to the finals against Toronto and steal a few games to get close to the finals. Uh, and it's not just me, right? Like we got scoring when we needed it. We made it work as a team, 100%. But on a personal level, I know that that was, was easily the best I ever played. And to just take part in a game seven, you know, you're walking in the building knowing that a, that a trophy is going to be handed out that night. Um, it sucks to be on the losing end of it, but to know that you've put every ounce of energy that yourself and your teammates possibly could and come that close. It's gut wrenching, but it's also super, super fulfilling to, to at least get to that level. And with all the traveling that you did, are there any uh, buildings that you love to play in or visit, whether it was AHL or NHL? Well, NHL of Montreal always comes to mind. You know, it's just got such a different vibe than so many cities. It's in intimidating in that building. I've been there before. Like it is well, loud. I got lit up on hockey night in Canada two years ago. So I can tell you that's pretty intimidating too. But uh, <laughs> I actually, actually, it wasn't, I shouldn't say lit up. I think I had 45 shots or something with Ottawa and we well, lost. Well, that's the thing about being a goalie one, you know? though. You so, can give well, up four goals and still have a good game. Not in the public's eye. Well, you can't give up more than two. It doesn't matter whether you face 60 shots or 20, there'll be, you know, well, you should have saved the third goal. It's a bad, well, okay. <laughs> I just yeah. had 30 other saves, you know, but uh, no, Montreal just has a buzz about it. It's just different. You know, there's a quiet energy in that building uh, that you can just tell that the fans are so into it. They know the game so well that there's this constant buzz of them talking about the game while they're watching. And then when things happen, the the noise and, and the little stuff, the hot dogs and the smoked meat that's downstairs waiting for you afterwards. And, and always the question of, will this team let us have the hot dogs? And then you have to <laughs> smuggle them in through the equipment manager. And uh, Montreal, just, just an amazing, amazing place. Uh, and in the American League, I always had a thing for just the really old, dungy, crappy, yes. like one and a half oh. showerhead working rinks. Like Syracuse <laughs> was my favorite. And I think that's part of the reason why I played so well in Syracuse when I got traded there is because I love that rink and I used to play yeah. so well in it every time. And it's, it's from Slapshot. It's literally in Slapshot. Yeah. You know, the fans are right on top of you. You know, it's, they've got fans blowing at the American flag and warmups, which is like 1950s. And it's just a fun place. It's so loud. Like we got, we got up to like 118 decibels. It was like louder than Motorhead in the playoffs. You know what I mean? So I always liked just the, the old crappy loud dungeons and uh yep. and the new montreal building is nothing like that but no there's no old ones left in the nhl anyway so you're no you're kind of just picking atmosphere there but the american league still has a lot of that old school to it yeah i used to love going to like nassau coliseum and those buildings like i mean even the old miami arena down here the, the one level where you go up or down wherever you come in and my first nhl game was at nassau 
It was oh, yeah? in the middle of a snowstorm and there was about 7,000 people there. <laughs> and I got tossed in midway through the first, second period. <laughs> yeah, that's a great place to have it happen though. That's one of the, yeah. I mean, I'm, I was glad to see that they started having games there last year just because it's, like you said, there's no, none other left. There's so much history in it. You know, it was really cool to, you know, despite the fact there weren't a lot of people there, uh, it was probably an easy way for me to get my first game, but to look up in the rafters and to see those Stanley Cup banners and the legendary names, it's, it, it was cool. You know, I'm, I'm glad that it happened there as opposed to somewhere that was really nondescript and generic. Yeah. Uh, how about from all the travel you did, any fun bus stories or travel stories that you'd be comfortable sharing? Well, a bus caught on fire. Uh, we lit one up on the way to Providence when I was playing in Portland. That was the first time I was in Portland. Mind you, I played in Portland for three different affiliates, which really classifies my career. <laughs> uh, this one was- How is the, Yeah, you had to talk about this. How does a bus get on fire? Well, so we were rolling down the highway and Clyde the glides behind the wheel and it's somewhere in Massachusetts and we hear bang. And, and I mean, like guys woke up, right? And we blew a rear wheel or a rear tire. Now, I have no idea what caused this to happen, whether it was a hydraulic line or brake line, whether because the tire blew that the bus went down on the wheel and there were sparks, whatever it was, the right rear lit up and we pull over to the side and we see smoke and we didn't think anything of it at first because it was white smoke and we'd heard the tire blow. So we figured it was just, that's what's going on. Well, we see Clyde hop off and he runs out on the side of the bus, takes a look and 180 full sprint. This guy's 75. He's high stepping back on the bus. Everybody off. We're on fire. And pretty much as he said that the smoke went from white to black and we're looking out and like our, our six, five tough guy, Mike Hoffman, mind you, not that Mike Hoffman in Florida, who I also played with in Binghamton. My career spanned two Mike Hoffmans. This Mike Hoffman, the one who put Vaseline on his face before games, is running out of the bathroom, jumping over the seats like Costanza and Seinfeld leaving the room going, we're on fire, pushing people out of the way. And and yeah, man, the bus was torched. Like we had to dig the gear out from underneath and the firewall kept the gear okay. Like our possessions, we were all fine, but there were big flames. And so we, we end up going to pull over we have to get a new bus. We show up in Providence two hours late and they go, okay, well, let's play. We're like, Where our gear smells like a mechanical fire. And so they gave us new under like clothes, like Providence gave us clothes to wear under our equipment. Well, equipment still stunk. And my goalie partner, Gerald Coleman was scheduled to start that game. And, and like, I went out for warmups without a helmet on. And the only time I put it on was when I was facing shots because it smelled that bad. <sighs> Well, Gerald pulls a shoot and says, I can't play. It's my gear smells too bad. And Kevin Deneen, the head coach, pulls me over the bench and he smells my shirt first, goes like this and smells it, my jersey. And he's like, can you play? I was like, let's start. Yeah, let's play. I've never turned down a start or anything in my life. Let's just do this. And, uh, you know, I think we were down three to one after two periods and, and we were kind of like, all right, this is salvageable. And then the smoke inhalation took over and we lost like seven to one or something by the end of the third. But uh, yeah, we torched a bus on the side of the highway in mass and we were on the news and everything. It was, it was one for the ages. I got a couple pictures of it and we all laugh about it now, but looking back, man, we were, we were kind of lucky. Like flames were pretty high. <laughs> That's crazy. And the fact that you had to just go play right after that with everything reeking is just yeah. uh... Yeah. I mean, other th you know, we sideswiped a Volvo on the Chesapeake Bay, Chesapeake Bay bridge when I was with Norfolk once, but that was just a minor thing, you know, a little fender bender, but uh, there's always bus stuff, you know, not being able to make it up the hill in Manchester, New Hampshire, because the road's too icy. 
<laughs> like you're just going, you're spinning the wheels and you're going, is this thing going to go? Are we going to get there? And that stuff happened all the time in the American league. Now, I don't know if you're a very superstitious goaltender or not. Uh, so this is whether for you or for anybody that you may have shared the locker room with, but any crazy superstitions or locker room habits you've experienced? Not for me. No, I wasn't at all. I tried to get rid of all that stuff because I thought it was the biggest mental waste of energy. And I think there's a lot of people that get completely wrapped up to it and they blur the line between thinking what they're doing is routine when it's really just superstition. You know, it's okay to have a routine. You need to get warmed up. You have to get mentally ready, but superstition to the point where it controls you and you start doing things in the room, like stacking bubble gum on top of Gatorades and goofy things like that, that I've seen before. No, I never did that thankfully, but yeah, I, I've seen some goofy stuff. Like what I just said, I've seen yeah. happen. You know, I had a teammate who'd come in, he'd take one sip out of a Gatorade He'd set it down next to him and just build a gum mound. And he'd come in between the next period, take one sip out of another Gatorade, put it down. Uh, it, so guys are weird, man. They tell us that goalies are weird. The, if you look around the room, there's plenty of weird going on. And it's not all goalies. It's just the fact that we got all the gear on and we're an easy target for the punchline. As I got older, I, I found that the little intricacies I did tapping my pads or, you know, like stepping over a line a certain way, it just got to be like a headache and it got to be like wasted energy. And I just wanted to go out there and just focus on the game. And so hearing you say that, it's like, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's yeah. just, it becomes like overwhelming almost. You want to just focus on one thing. Yeah. The only thing that matters is stopping the puck, yeah. you know, and, and you'll see, you'll see goalies that it used to be that you wouldn't talk to them on a game day what good is that? Like you, you've got to talk to your teammates. Like you've got to be ready for a penalty kill. You have to direct traffic. You need to talk in between periods and figure out what's gone well and bad. And like the worst thing you can do is be a mute and just stand out there like a bump, you know, like you, you're part of the team. You're a hockey player as a goalie, you know? And I think that that's something that people have taken a long time to realize is that you're a critical member of the team, not just a goalie. And uh, you know, thankfully people are starting to embrace that. But I think the sooner a goaltender, a young goaltender does, it's to their benefit. Now, I know we mentioned Jordy Kinnear and he talked about Kevin Deneen. Um, are there any coaches from over the years that stand out to you as just, just like really great coaches, great guys? Yeah, and especially a lot of goalie coaches. You know, that's the yep. special relationship we have. Uh, goalie coaches in your corner, hopefully, you know, they're, <laughs> they understand what you're going through. They're willing to stand up for you with the, with the head coach at times, because most head coaches hate goalies. That's the way it works. Um, but, uh, you know, the first coach I had in pro was a guy named Glenn Gullitson with the Las Vegas Wranglers who gave me a chance and just was phenomenal. Our teams were so well coached. He was, he was such a good person to us. He was passionate but fair. And, you know, he's been a head coach in the NHL twice since then. He's a current assistant coach in the NHL. Gully was amazing. He really was. Dino gave me a break in Portland. Super thankful for him. Loved him as a person too. Uh, and, and it just starts to blur, you know, when you start thinking of coaches over 20 something game or career teams. Um, the one that sticks out to me though, is Scott Allen, who I mentioned previously. He yeah. was our assistant coach turned head in Portland and then was in Florida the next year. And as weird as that season was in Florida, guess what was really good? The penalty kill second in the league. And it was all Scotty Allen. And that's his calling card. He goes to Phoenix the next season after that first in the league on the penalty kill. I mean, just a super detailed guy. who would spend the night at the rink if he had to on a cot, you know? So uh, he was special for me. I had him in three cities, Peoria, Omaha, and Portland. Well, I guess four, four, cause Florida as well. 
um, but super special relationship with him and goalie coaches. Mitch Korn uh, was drafted by Nashville. He was my guiding light and mentor, despite the fact that they never signed me. You know, uh, we've stayed really close. Uh, I worked camps for him and has remained you know, kind of on his inner circle, which I'm super thankful for. Pierre Grew, I mentioned previously, Ian Clark, who I had in uh, in Columbus as well. Jeff Reese, who I had in Dallas. Just, just really special relationships across the board. Jim Bedard, I have to mention, who was with me in in Texas when we went to the uh, to the Calder Cup Finals. Um, it can go on and on. You know, there's not many goalie coaches that uh, that I didn't enjoy and, and I didn't learn from. One constant that I think I noticed throughout your career is you've always been a Bauer guy. Is that right? That's right. What's, my whole career. What was it about Bauer that just you, you stuck with them for all of these years? Well, they were good to me and I was good to them. You know, <laughs> there's uh, there's not much loyalty left these days when it comes to equipment, it seems like. But I wore them in, in college. When I showed up, I always had worn Bauer through Bantam hockey. And when I got to college, the rep there said, hey, you need to go over to Mississauga. And, and get fitted, meet our, our head pro rep, Todd Brown. I was like, wow, I can go to the factory? This is like, like Panacea. Oh, I'm going to the factory. And man, I showed up and I'm expecting like, you know, 40, 70 year old white haired guys stitching pads together. And it wasn't, you know, it was a bunch of seamstresses. And, it, and so it was like a wake up call to, to how it was made. But in any case, that just really forged my relationship with Bauer and specifically with Todd Brown, who was my rep there from college clear through pro hockey. And so being able to work with Brownie um, just gave me that opportunity to, to be able to try things. They, they'd send me new products. And, and to be honest with you, I never negotiated an endorsement deal once with them. I never asked them for anything. I never asked for more, um, but they did, they did give me um, some incentive to wear their equipment later in my career, but I never asked for it. And so I just felt like it was a great relationship. And I really thought that, you know, for a couple of years there, it was starting to get scary, right? Like they were a little behind the curve in terms of technology in the mid two thousands. And then their 195 pad came out and it was a light years ahead of the old pad. And then they started to get better and better. And then they got to the Odin series, which is the one S and two S and what we have now with the hypersonic, and to me, it's the best gear on the market. I love it. Uh, they were, you know, they swung, they swung me a set for Vegas for me to practice in on occasion when I need it. Oh, nice. Um, but I just, I, I love the feel of it. And again, it's just, it's one of those things that I think every co- equipment company makes good gear now. I do. I think it's a personal preference thing, but it comes down to relationships. And I had a great one with Todd Brown. I had a great one with Henry Breslin after him. And that's the reason why I stuck with him. I like that you talk about like back in the day, I'm, I'm trying to think like, was it Bauer reactor? That was like, you know, Bauer that... reactor five was my pad. And I wore, when I was in Dallas, I wore a throwback set to the I, reactor. Five. I saw, I was looking up pictures and I saw yeah. those. And I was like, Holy crap. That reminds me of when I was yeah. like a teenager. So I had three pairs of reactor fives as a teenager myself as well. I'm 37 and I loved <laughs> it. I think it's the greatest colorway ever for pads ever. I don't think anything touches it. The piping was cool. It was amazing, you know, and there's great pads out there too. Like the Vaughn legacies from years ago, the pro 90 Z's like there's iconic pads, but to me that reactor five setup and the moment I found out Bauer could digiprint anything you want, I just went, man, 
I've got to do it. I, I don't know how many years I have left and I'd love to try this. And I remember skating out in Dallas when I got those and everybody was double taking with them. They couldn't believe their eyes because up close, obviously you can tell it's printed and all like the internet kitties are like, hey, it's printed. It doesn't look real. Well, it's not real. Of course, <laughs> like it's a tribute. It, cool. it is a tribute to what I once had, you know, and, but from a distance, you really can't tell. Like if you're in the stands, it looks real. And so I wore it there. I was going to wear it again uh, in Philadelphia at the end of my career. Unfortunately, that set showed up like the last day of the season. But uh, I was hoping to finish my career in Reactor 5 tributes. But, uh, but yeah, man, that, that setup was just, was just banging, man. It was my absolute favorite. And you're a little ahead of the curve there too, because now uh, since then you see like them, they're making the, the lines that are like the vintage look with like the old leather pad look. And so, so that you're a little ahead of the curve there with that one. Yeah. And the vintage pad looks kind of a tough one for me though. Cause if you're going vintage to me, you can't put any color on it. Like it's just Brown period. Yeah. No, that's it. It's got to look leather. The blocker with the circles on it. I, I kind of struggle with the ones that I see they're half and half. Like there'll be Brown, but then they'll have like some red mixed in or something. I'm just like, nah, it doesn't work for me on a personal level. It's not my favorite thing, but, but I do love it though. The people are kicking it back to that. Cause the, the old Brown stuff, I mean, I started with brown glove and blocker not john brown i had a john brown glove and blocker but brown colored equipment ah uh, yeah I, i've still got my my john brown chest pad that i've had probably since like 2002 yeah well it still you, works it's it must be built like a tank man that's yeah those I went, things are bulky. I, I could go through two a year arm and chest the way we take shots in the nhl man they, they get beat up yeah I, I don't even want to think about that i'm glad i'm good with my beer league guys now um my pad of choice from all the years of you know coho 580s for me those were like if i could wear any pad again if, if i could go back in time and not sell them those were mine like but the, the look the feel those were amazing did, did you ever mess with cohos no I, well i by that point i was already playing college or pro right so to get another set would have taken jumping through some hoops you know and i no, was never really you already locked in the bower yeah and and like the thing is like if if you're a hot prospect teams are, or equipment companies are throwing equipment at you like everybody makes something for you and for me, that was, that wasn't the case. You know, I was kind of a, you know, like I was a mid pack depth guy a lot of the time. And then by the time I got old enough to finally have companies really probably want to have me on their roster, like, I think everybody knew I was pretty much a Bauer guy. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I never really experimented a lot other than wearing my teammates gear on occasion, like Jake Allen and I switched pads. I wore his Vaughn's for practice. He wore my Bowers. So I do that occasionally. Craig Anderson and I switched gloves in Ottawa. So he could catch right and I could catch left for the fun of it. Uh, <laughs> I, but yeah, yeah. I, I didn't really experiment a lot just because of that. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have the resources to really go for it in terms of team companies that wanted to demo me. And so I just kind of stuck with what I had because I was happy with it. You mentioned being the, the, uh, the, was it, we call it the full right goalie, mm-hmm. which is just means that you're left-handed, right? Yeah. You, well, you, no, you, I'm not. I'm right-handed. I do everything right-handed. Oh, you, but you played, you caught with your right? Yeah. I catch a baseball with my left and a puck with my right, okay, which I think, which, which I think is the way every single young goaltender should learn. They should learn to play goalie the same way that they shoot a puck naturally. You've got to expound on like, how, how did think you think about it? If I throw a ball at you, can you catch it with either hand? Sure. Okay. Can you probably better with my right sh- hand? Can you, can you pick up a stick and shoot either way? Only because I had to learn how to shoot lefty as a goalie. Otherwise I wouldn't be able to, but as a kid, no, no way. Everything so, I did was swinging the bat right-handed, shooting right-handed. Correct. So if you'd picked up a stick right-handed as a goaltender, 
do you think that your puck handling would have advanced quicker and made you a better puck handling goaltender at a younger age? Absolutely. It was the, it was the last thing to develop in my game. Right. And do you think that your glove hand would have caught up to be as good as your, as the other one? Maybe it, it right. possible. I mean, if you start so, from a young age, then yeah. So everybody thinks I'm crazy when I say this, but I got reasons for it. Well, it you know? makes and for sense. me, for me, it was just simply like, I, I just picked the stick up and that's what felt normal to me. I, I should shoot right-handed. Like I wanted to be Ron Hextall as a kid. I wanted to score goals. I wanted to be a goalie that scores goals. And so I picked it up the same way. And also my first goalie hero was Greg Millen for the St. Louis blues. I mean, I'm three years old, right? This is 86, 87, but he caught with his right hand. So I, I had those two things kind of working towards it. It wasn't a conscious decision when I was a kid. Like I just explained to you, that would be a conscious decision for me. It's it's it wasn't at all. Um, but my daughter's experimenting with goaltender and she's right-handed and guess what? She's wants to catch with her right as well. And, and it makes sense. Well, if my four-year-old decides he wants to start playing goalie, maybe I'll have to call you back and get a little bit more info on this. Cause this is actually the more I'm thinking about it. It's like, wow, my stick handling sucked forever. Like I tried to flip my slip stick over the way Cujo used to do, yeah. uh, try to turn the glove over, which is how all the guys doing it now. I just doesn't work. I just, I'll stay in my crease, but that that's an interesting thought and kind of another good segue into what I, the last thing I want to ask you about your goalie coaching for 44 vision hockey, but it's virtual. I think that is so interesting. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's, it, it's kind of the product of the pandemic. You know, we're all finding different ways to do things and a friend of mine, Rob Shrimp, came up with this for forwards to be able to teach them online, take their game tape. And that's the way it works. If you have live barn or any other availability to your game tape, you upload it to the website, you create an account, all that stuff. But what happens is it populates. We have people who clip the tape for us. So I get the clip tape. I get all, everything that the goalie's done and I get to break it down. And the way it works is I take four or five clips, break them down, put, upload the video, have a Zoom call afterwards that you go even further in depth on the rest of the topics. Um, so they have you know, some of the clips to always refer back to and you have your Zoom call that you can talk about and, and go into depth with your game. But the reason it works so well is because you're actually looking at live, live timing hockey and you're speaking with somebody who's been a professional, who knows the game, who's been there before, who understands the mental side of it, who also understands the technical side of it. Myself, I mean, I'm a year and a half removed from the NHL. You know, I've ridden the new curve. I can hit an RVH, no problem. You know what I mean? And swivel and do all that. Like um, a goalie from the mid nineties may not. So uh, it, it really is something that I never thought coaching was going to be my path, my career destiny. I still don't think that I love goaltending. I love, I love helping people get better with it. I actually ran goalie camps while I was playing pro um, because one, I felt like I was giving back and two, Hey man, it's nice to make a couple, little bit of cash in the summer, no doubt. Um, and that's where this is too. Like it's, it's nice to make a little on the side, but uh, the, the nice part though, is that you're, you know, you can really dig in and teach stuff this way. You really can. And I've seen results with it um, with some college kids I'm working with. It's incredible how well today's athlete translates what they see on video into what they can do in the next couple of sessions on the ice. It's amazing. Uh, and it's kind of, it's the YouTube generation. You know, a lot of them have already learned from watching YouTube clips, watching NHL clips, whereas younger people or people from my generation, you know, we, we didn't see that much hockey. We probably saw our hometown team on TV, you know, a couple times a week, you know, and, and now it's just every waking minute. So it's, it's super fun. It's cool. And, and I'm hoping that uh, people get as much out of it as I do. 
when you told me that earlier, I thought that was the coolest thing because I wanted to ask you if you had any you know, aspirations to becoming a coach, you know, down the line. So when you mentioned that, I was just like, it's perfect for, for the time right now, especially, but it's something that you could certainly continue to push on well past this pandemic, which hopefully will be over. For you know, sure. And it complements what I do. It complements what I do really well with being a, a studio analyst for the Golden Knights and that it keeps me, uh, it keeps me active in the coaching. It keeps me active describing what's going on to kids and learning from them too. Like you learn from people playing the game. So uh, seeing it through a coach's eyes is never a bad, bad thing, especially when I try to translate what I see. What I see is what I have to translate verbally on air, you know? So uh, it, it's helped me in that regard too. It's, it's a really nice compliment to it. Well, I, I think it's great, Mike. I think that you are great. I really appreciate your time. I'm not going to take up any more of it. So I want to thank you, Mike McKenna, Vegas Golden Knights studio analyst and host of the Six Degrees podcast with Mike McKenna. Uh, thank you so much. I certainly will be keeping in touch. I'll, I'll keep you posted as um, my four-year-old starts to shoot his, shoot the puck a little bit better. Um, but again, thanks. And uh, you're welcome. It, you never have to. You're never wasting time when we're talking goalie, David. Man, it's always fun. Appreciate uh, it. It's it's great, man. And again, I appreciate the goalie chat. I look forward to doing it again. And yeah, so that's going to wrap up this episode of the Chirping the Cats podcast. I want to thank everybody listening. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, please hit the subscribe button. Give me a good rating. Uh, you know you can find all my content on local10.com. You can follow my daily Panthers coverage at David's work on Twitter. And uh, once again, everybody, thank you for listening. Thank you so much to Mike McKenna for joining me. And uh, we'll catch you guys for the next episode. So please stay safe, wear your mask, and uh, take care. We'll talk to you soon.